Ladies and gentlemen, The Dana Buckler Show is made possible by all of our amazing Patreon supporters. We have a lot of big things planned in the immediate future, and this is possible because of the support this show receives. So what do you get when you become a supporter? Early access to episodes, past episodes that are no longer available on the main podcast feed, and a number of exclusive episodes. Sign up today by going to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There is a link in this episode's show notes. Once again, we want to say thank you to all of our supporters. You are amazing. Now on with the show. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am pleased to welcome back my good friend Ashley Shafley for our continuing look at the evolution of the vampire film. Well, I suppose there's a little caveat there since this is not technically a film we're talking about, but we did Buffy the Vampire Slayer on our last episode, and you cannot simply gloss over the fact that that movie spawned arguably the most popular vampire TV show in history. So, Ashley, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Excited to be talking all things Buffy today. I was talking to Ashley before we started recording that, you know, I can't think of a a person other than you that I would like to have on this show because I consider you to be the genuine expert on this series. It is something that we have talked about since the first time you and I had our our first phone conversation almost a year ago. Like this is something that you are an expert in and I am excited to learn as much as possible from you today. So again, thank you for being here. No, absolutely. I, I mean, I think it's I think it's super exciting. I, you know, on my Twitter profile, it even says that I rewatch Buffy annually. And that is not an overstatement. I, I find myself watching the show every year. It's super important to me. And as we'll unpack, um, it's super important to a lot of people for a lot of reasons. So I'm excited to, you know, pay it its due today. And we couldn't leave it out in a vampire series for sure, because it definitely is one of the most influential vampire pieces, art pieces, shows, movies, you know, whatever medium, it's one of the most important uh, that exists. So I think it's I think it's really exciting that we're finally here. All right, well, let's get right into it. So the first sort of topic uh, we want to discuss is sort of the general overview of the show and, and sort of the history of the show. So how do we get from the Buffy movie to the Buffy TV series. Sure. So we covered this a little bit on our our Buffy movie episode, but just as a recap, you know, the movie comes out in the early 90s. It is a modest to not a huge success, and it kind of goes into the analog of teen films that could have been forgotten about. It turned out to be a movie that was not the story of Buffy that creator Joss Whedon had in mind. And so a few years later, he's gained a little bit more more notoriety, a little bit more respect in Hollywood, and he decides to turn the Buffy movie into more of a long-form storytelling project, which becomes the Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV show. And it actually would premiere March 10th, 1997 on a very, you know, floundering, kind of unknown television station called the WB. And it would premiere to mediocre numbers at first. Uh, A lot of the same reasons 
reasons that I think the movie was sort of overlooked by some people because the title remained the same and the title is kind of strange. It sounds really goofy, but it would become a show that after the first season, which we'll kind of get into a little bit after the first season, beginning in the second season, that would become a pop culture phenomenon, a critical darling, and a show that would not only re-energize the WB station, but would create this new uh, approach to television where we started prioritizing the teen experience and the teen um, audience and giving them more credit and more due for wanting smarter things and wanting more interesting things uh, that would happen over the course of its seven season run. And I think, Dana, if it's if it's okay, I think it would be good to talk about where TV was when Buffy premiered, where teen TV was, because it kind of came at the end of a weird time for teen television. So you had the incredible critical smash of my so-called life that had aired, you know, just a few years before in 1994 and 1995. And my so-called life, it only aired for one season, but it is accepted to this day as being one of the most powerful one seasons of TV ever. But it wasn't teen show that was perhaps a little too real for parents. They they were very, like my own parents were incredibly uncomfortable, made uncomfortable by it because they didn't want to think that teens were really doing all the things that they covered in that show from sex to drugs to sexuality. Parents weren't ready for it. And it was a little too real for teens themselves. You know, we talk about teens today being woke. And teens were not woke back then. Even teens themselves were not really ready to understand the things they were going through in that way. So you had My So-Called Life, and then you also had Beverly Hills 90210, which was still on the air when Buffy premiered. Um, But 90210 is not real at all. I don't know any people who had the 90210 experience. We talked a little bit in Buffy about Luke Perry's character, Dylan, you know, McKay alone, you know, that was not a typical high school experience. So Buffy all of a sudden comes out and it is a real approach to what teens are dealing with, like like my so-called life, but with the campiness of a 90210. So it was this new type of teen show that came on the scene. And that really kind of changed the way that teen shows were able to be written, as well as the way that teens themselves were able to digest television and digest their own experiences. So that's kind of the world in which it came out. And you know, what would happen to the WB is that halfway through the second season, they would actually combine Buffy with Dawson's Creek. And all of a sudden, the WB is the most successful television network that existed because of the start of Buffy and this ushering in of the new teen comedy and the new teen drama. You know, one of the things that's interesting is you talk about the WB just for a moment. And this was during a time when I think it was also the UPN network came out at the same time. And I want to sort of emphasize to, to the listeners out there, particularly probably the younger ones, like these were the WB and UPN, these were not cable channels. These were over-the-air broadcast channels. And it was kind of an interesting thing to unveil these networks in the 90s, because up until that point in America, you know, your over-the-air networks were ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS, a couple other ones. So 
it was a real risk to unveil two new networks. And you mentioned about the WB really being a fledgling network. I remember, I mean, I was a teenager when these things came out and it's pretty remarkable what they were able to accomplish. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't the two networks eventually merge into one? Yeah, so the WB eventually went away, and Buffy actually moved to UPN okay. in its sixth season. Um, and once Buffy moved to UPN, UPN also blew up. I mean, Buffy was just a ratings gold. I mean, it, it was ratings gold for whatever station it was on. But yes, eventually the WB would go away, and all of those shows on the WB would move over to UPN, and UPN would have its own kind of renaissance of the new teen shows like uh, Veronica Mars, for example example that would air there. But, you know, I think also we have to mention, you know, WB, I mean, Dawson's Creek, Roswell, uh, Everwood, uh, Gilmore Girls, all of these shows that are kind of today having this resurgence are, you know, were WB shows. I mean, it was an incredibly important network for teenagers. And I have been working with some students at a, a local high school, and they all wear these shirts now. They wear like friend shirts and Dawson's Creek shirts and Buffy shirts, because it's this new resurgence of what the late 90s and the early 2000s, you know, for them, they weren't born yet, which makes me feel immensely ancient. <laughs> but it was, you know, really funny to, to see them. And I stopped a couple of them. And I was like, you know, where did you get those. And apparently like at Hot Topic and all of these stores that teens shop at, you know, these are the shirts they buy because this is all cool again. And all of the things they're now consuming on Netflix, they all began on the WB and on UPN. And for just one more little thing about the W, WB was Warner Brothers. If yes. I'm not, and then UPN was Paramount. Yeah, exactly. So, and yeah. WB had that great frog. Yeah, that's I just, right. I, I have such a mental image of, you know, when it was in between shows, you know, that frog closing the WB, you know, symbol. Yeah. So, no, yeah. I remember that. So, and you kind of touched on this just a little bit when you were just going over sort of a, the overview, but can you really get into just the importance of the show in pop culture? Because I will admit to being, let's see, I'm, I'm a, a few years older than you. But obviously, very much had my ear to the ground as far as what was popular on television. I'll also admit that I didn't watch Buffy at the time, but I, I even knew about it and I knew how popular it was. So just talk a little bit about just the importance of this show in pop culture. Sure. I mean, there were a lot of things I think that we kind of need to touch on. The, the first was the way that television would be portrayed like season by season change with Buffy. You know, Joss Whedon, as we talked about on the movie episode, he has a huge background in comics. And he took a lot of influence from the way that comic book series, the way the plot develops in those series and applied it to Buffy. So in comic books, each series has one big bad and each episode or each issue touches on that big bad. It carries through that story. And so you combine his influence of comics along with him being influenced by the show X-Files, which had already kind of started that interconnected storytelling. And he changed the way that Buffy would be portrayed in the sense that each season had a big bad. So there is one bad guy or one bad set of people each season that the whole season focused on. And while there were, you know, Monsters of the Week episodes as they went, every single episode was a touch point for that greater story throughout the course of the season. And today, I think we take that for granted. 
Because if you look at shows like that are on network TV, you look at shows like Supernatural or Lucifer or Once Upon a Time or any of those shows, they are written in that same format. I mean, even a show like The Wire is written in that same format where it's the same set of characters, but each season it changes what their main focus is, what the main intention is. And Buffy was really where a lot of that started. Um, Another thing is, you know, a lot of, Uh, essays have been written about how 1999 was the year that television, the golden age of television began. And a lot of people give credit to David Chase and creating The Sopranos. But now a lot of people talk in conjunction with David Chase and Joss Whedon, because by 1999, you had gotten into the heart of Buffy's best seasons. And now people talk about how both of them ushered in this new change in television. And while The Sopranos was for your more adult series, Buffy was very much for your teen series, because it was this beautiful tribute to the teen years and how the world often feels like it's ending when you're a teenager. And for Buffy, it literally was. (laughs) And so there's these great allegorical moments throughout Buffy, you know, from, you know, these big topics of losing your virginity, the death of a parent, uh, being gay and coming out, all of it was so incredibly smart and allegorical. So vampires became a metaphor for sexual predators. And, you know, witches became a metaphor for um, owning your own sexuality and femininity. The big bad was a metaphor for oppressive authorities and fighting sometimes just loneliness, the loneliness you feel when you're a teenager. And that social comment commentary is so rich in Buffy. That was the first time that really happened. The first time that in a quote unquote youth show, they really dealt with these issues in an honest way and in an accessible way. And we see that continuing. And I actually read a really interesting essay prepping for this where they talked about how Buffy began the whole process, whereas today networks and corporations are reaching out to millennials and trying to engage millennials, that that can be traced back and began with Buffy in 1997. And the only other thing I'll say too is Buffy, you can't underestimate the importance of to the gay community that that Buffy held the queer community, because it was the first time that a lot of us, myself included, saw a homosexual couple and it was normalized with Willow and Tara on the show from seasons four through season six. It was a huge deal that they were together, that it was normalized that they were together, and that Buffy's friends accepted them. So then a whole generation of people growing up began to accept that as well. So it was incredibly important to pop culture. And that's why people still talk about it as often as they do. And why it's so important to so many people, especially of of my age group, because I was a year younger than Buffy was supposed to be. And so growing up with that, um, it was incredibly important for a whole generation. Before we get into sort of a discussion of of the cast, I wonder if you could take me through your first viewing of the first Buffy, the very first episode, you knew it was coming, you you were excited. Take me through that first experience. Yeah, I, I remember watching it. I remember watching the trailers for it. I had seen like, a, like I had said in our last episode, I had seen the movie had not been a huge fan of the movie. But I, I watched the show for some reason. And it took me a little while to truly fall in love with it. Because the first season, 
is nowhere near the quality as the rest of the seasons. You can definitely tell they were trying to figure out who these characters were and what the world was going to be. Because like how I mentioned earlier about the big bad, there is a big bad in season one, but there's a lot of Monsters of the Week episodes that they don't, re- there's too many of them. Whereas in the the next seasons, two through seven, it's, it's much more um, interspersed throughout where it's not like every episode is a Monster of the Week. Most of them are interconnected. And the ones that are Monsters of the Week, we all remember because they were um, so great. But I remember liking it. I liked Buffy's character. I really liked Willow's character. I related a ton to Willow because I was a huge geek (laughs) in high school. Um, And I think that that was something that really appealed to me because from the first episode, they normalized geek culture, which we have to remember was not a thing in 1997. It's cool to be weird and nerdy now. And it wasn't in 97. I joke all the time with my younger cousins that I missed my decade because I would have been the most popular kid in school if I, if I was in school today. But you know, it wasn't cool in 97 to be playing Dungeons and Dragons and to, you know, be into comics. And so from the first episode, they normalized that. And I remember really that I remember really relating to that and relating to the fact that it wasn't your typical teen girl, because let's let's just say it from the outset, Sarah Michelle Gellar was gorgeous when she was a young girl. And I remember watching and going, oh, okay, so it's going to be one of those shows like 90210 was. And then in the very first episode, she rejects Cordelia, the super popular girl, and she becomes friends with the nerdy kids because that's who she is. And I, I remember really loving that from from the first episode. Let's segue into that. You mentioned Sarah Michelle Gellar. Let's let's just have a, a, a discussion, if you will, about the, the cast. Just go over the whole thing. Like, just tell me the standouts. You know, you mentioned a couple names already, but immerse me, if you will, in your thoughts on the cast. Just, I think we have to start with Sarah Michelle Gellar. I mean, Sarah Michelle Gellar is Buffy. She always will be Buffy. And I think her career has suffered because she was Buffy, because a lot of us have trouble seeing her as anything but Buffy. But she was such a typical California girl, the way that she looked, you know, she was blonde, she was beautiful. And she was hilarious. Her her comedic timing was great. But you know, when she got the role, the only thing Sarah Michelle Gellar had been known for was for her soap opera work. She was a soap opera actress. And then she got this role. And I actually read a really interesting interview with her a few years ago, where she talked about how Joss Whedon did not tell her the amount of uh, physicality that her role was going to require and that she just went to pieces during the first season because she's like, there's no way that I can do all of this because she was this pretty, you know, dainty girl and that by the end of the series, she was this total badass. And, you know, of course, we all know Sarah Michelle Gellar would go on to star in things like I Know What You Did Last Summer and, you know, a few roles like that. So she was very important in the early 2000s, late 90s. But when she got cast as Buffy, she was a soap opera actress. Then you've got her two best friends. You've got Xander, who is played by Nicholas Brendan. Uh, Nicholas Brendan, his character, Xander, is actually supposed to be the most like Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon wrote himself into the series, basically, with Xander's character. And Nicholas Brendan was an unknown. You had a very unknown at the time, Allison Hannigan, playing Willow. 
who, if you actually watch the first season, she looks like she's 12 years old. <laughs> she looks like she's so incredibly young. And of course, she would go into her, you know, infamous role in American Pie and, you know, in her adult years starring in How I, How I Met. Is it How I Met Your Mother? I never watched that show. That is it. How yes. you met. Yeah. How, how I Met Your Mother. Yeah. Yeah, she would go on to star in that, but she was, a, you know, a huge unknown. You had Cordelia, who was played by one of my favorite actress names ever, Charisma Carpenter. And Charisma Carpenter, also a total unknown, and in her 30s while filming the Buffy series, while the others were their own age of their characters, she was much, much older. Also, fun fact, she auditioned for Buffy and was in the running to play Buffy until they met Sarah Michelle Gellar. I think it would have been a totally different show if Charisma Carpenter had been uh, Buffy. And then you have the very unknown at the time, David Boreanaz, who played Angel, who was the bad boy vampire love interest of Buffy. Uh, that all of us fell in love with um, that watched the show. And then we would be remiss to not also mention uh, Anthony Stewart Head, who would play the Donald Sutherland character in the movie that was completely redone for the television series, the the role of her watcher, Giles. Uh, Anthony Stewart Head, an, an unknown actor here in the United States, he would play her watcher. So it really was a cast of unknowns and kind of unseasoned actors. And in a way, that's what made it incredibly authentic is because they were so young, except for Charisma Carpenter, and they were so new that they're not having that that season actor um, portrayal, the way they approach their their thing, their you know their lines and their scenes, it almost ca- came across as much more authentic as you watch them grow up on screen together than if they had put a bunch of people in there, you know, who we all knew and recognized. I want to talk a little bit about the different seasons because I hear all immense discrepancies when people when it comes to people's opinions about the seasons. But before we get to that, you know, you had mentioned that you were, and like me, you know, you weren't really a big fan of the movie. How quickly into the series did you feel like Whedon had really righted the ship as far as getting the story that he really wanted to, to tell across? I mean, the first episode, yeah. by far. I mean, he made, he and his writing team made some incredibly smart choices. So the series opens up with Buffy moving to the fictional California town of Sunnydale. Um, Instead of being a senior like she is in the movie, she's a sophomore in the show. And she is coming because she was expelled from her school in Los Angeles for burning down the gymnasium like in the movie. But nobody believed that there were vampires there. So they thought she was just a bad kid. And so she and her mother, because her parents were divorced, moved to Sunnydale for her to start over. Uh, So she already knows, um, you know, that she that she is a slayer. Um, She already knows that she doesn't have to go through the change from being a normal, quote unquote, girl to being a, you know, a badass, you know, mythological character, you know, she already knows that she's already aware of vampires. And a lot of those decisions and making her younger, a lot of those decisions definitely, you know, as you said, righted the ship from the the offset. And then I'll say also the supporting cast, the way that they wrote the characters, her supporting characters and the show from episode one, as opposed to in the movie also worked because Xander and Willow and Cordelia are fantastic from 
the first the first episode, uh, which actually brings us to something I didn't mention. You know, there's actually a whole world in academia that studies the writing of Buffy. It's called Slayer Slang. And it's all about the, you know, we call them Whedonisms in a way, but they're they're not just Whedonisms, they're specific to Buffy. And it doesn't, it, we can't just credit Joss Whedon, we also have to credit his writing team, the three most famous of which are Marty Noxon, Jane Espenson, and Drew Goddard. You know, and they would go on to write a lot of things that we're still consuming today. Marty Noxon, you know, she has that great show, Unreal. Jane Espenson, who writes for a show I've never seen, uh, Once Upon a Time. And then Drew Goddard, you know, he co-wrote Cabin in the Woods with yeah. Whedon. And so you have, you know, these three people that from the beginning were writing with Joss Whedon, and they created this Slayer slang that from the first episode, it's just fresh. It didn't sound like anything else on TV, and it sounded like what teens sounded like that's um and so yeah and you got those great lines like buffy you know if the apocalypse comes then beat me you know like (laughs) things like that like little quips from the first episode that just it just worked it just didn't sound like anything else on tv you know just to give a quick shout out to um we hate movies podcast they um they released an episode on the buffy movie about a week after we released ours so we got ours out ahead of them so that being said (laughs) that being said they they got into a lengthy discussion about the different seasons and even between the four of them there was dissension in the ranks about what the best seasons were so Ashley, I'm going to turn it over to you. Give me the the overall impression of 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 the seasons, and you know why is there such a divisiveness about the different seasons? Yeah, so I think the big division for Buffy fans comes with season five, uh, which we'll get into in a second. But I think categorically, most people love seasons two and three, which was really Buffy at its prime. Um, and then you get into season five, and then you get into the late seasons of six and seven, which which is again when it moved to UPN. Um, but let's, for for sake of of a linear conversation, let's start with season one. And I think the best way, Dana, for us to talk about them to not kind of bore people is just to focus on the big bads for that season, since that kind of is the themology and the the purpose of each season. So season one, which is uh, the first season that premiered in 97, the big bad of that season is a big bad called the um, the master. So the master is kind of this uber vamp and in Buffy terms, I shouldn't say that because uber vamps come later, but he's this big, he's this big vampire that is an incredibly important vampire in mythology and he's part of a prophecy with the Slayer that he will kill the Slayer. And once he does, he'll get out and the apocalypse will come. The apocalypse is a, a, a you know, a huge repeating uh, fear in the Buffy, the Buffy verse. And so in the first season, Buffy is afraid of the master and she and her friends and Giles, her watcher and Angel who becomes her friend, uh, they are fighting to prevent this prophecy from coming to pass. And it's a it's an okay season. Uh, compared to the others, it's not great. Because again, it's a little clunky, because it's that first season where they're trying to figure things out. You've got some great episodes like there's this one episode episode three that's called witch which is a wonderful episode that shows kind of what buffy could do where 
Buffy is fighting uh, against, she tries up for the cheerleading team and a fellow cheerleader. Her mother is a witch and takes over her body so that she can be a cheerleader again. Um, and it's a very funny episode. And that's a little glimpse that in the seventh episode, Angel, where we find out that Angel is a vampire. Because a lot of people that watched uh, Buffy in the later seasons don't realize that we didn't know Angel was a vampire when we first started watching it. We don't find that out until a little bit into the season. So there's moments in the first season but the master is really not that scary he's okay he the makeup's really bad the makeup is not aged well <laughs> at all but it was an okay season so everybody kind of just respects it for starting buffy but then we get into buffy heyday which are seasons two and three her last two years of high school so season two the big bad is actually angel um there's a great episode. Um, it's called Innocence. It comes after Buffy loses her virginity to Angel. And so there is a uh, basically a prophecy in the show that um, Angel was cursed by a gypsy and given his soul back. That's why he's a good vampire. He has regret for all of the things that he has done. And that if he has a moment of pure happiness, he will lose his soul again. And so Buffy has sex with him. And the next morning, he's bad because he loses his soul. And so he becomes a bad guy. And we get a lot of really heartbreaking episodes. And that's where Buffy really found its legs. Because the last two episodes of that season are called Becoming Parts 1 and Part 2. Um, those episodes are just some of the saddest episodes of TV ever because uh, Buffy winds up having to to kill him and send him to a hell dimension and it's I know that sounds ridiculous but it's incredibly it's incredibly heartbreaking and generally most uh, fans love season two uh, they also typically really love season three where the big bad was the mayor uh, the mayor wants to again fulfill a prophecy where he will become this demon and bring in the apocalypse and there's He's a wonderful character. The actor who plays him is funny. This is Joss Whedon's writing team at their best because he's scary and he's lethal, but he's funny. And you can't help but laugh sometimes. And and so that season really, really goes on and, and has a graduation day is the day that he transitions and Buffy has to blow up Sunnydale High in order to uh, in order to kill him. And it's such a again, metaphors and Buffy, it's such a great metaphor for the end of high school that literally their their high school is blown up in order to um, usher in the next part of their of their lives. Um, and then season four is where it starts to lose me a little bit. I will go on the record of saying I hated season four. Um, most, most teen shows struggle with that transition to college. Uh, and when this the the characters go from being in a high school setting to all of a sudden being on their own and being adults in a collegiate setting. And season four of Buffy suffers in, in that way. It, it really does. And we look at, you know, the Buffy series and it, it, they had to get their legs underneath them in season one. I am of the opinion that they also had to get their legs underneath them in season four. And your big bad in that season is Adam. Um, he is a cyborg that is... It's this whole stupid plot line where the military is 
collecting supernatural beings. So they're collecting vampires, they're collecting demons, and Adam is a hodgepodge of all of their parts. But this is where you actually, ironically, though, with it being, in my opinion, the worst season, getting you get one of the most famous Buffy episodes, and one of the most critically acclaimed episodes ever, one that I told you to watch, um, called Hush. Uh, it was season four, episode 10. And if any of you are listening, and you haven't watched Buffy, I would encourage you to watch that episode because you really don't have to know what's going on. But the whole episode is silent. There's no words spoken at all in the episode because the bad guys in the episode have stolen the town's voices so that they can take out people's hearts. They need to collect a certain number of hearts and that way they won't scream. And it's really sinister and it's really scary and it's Buffy at its Monsters of the Week best and it is by far the high point of of season four. So that is a wonderful, absolutely wonderful episode. But I personally am just not a huge fan of season four. And then you get into season five, which is where the divide begins. So this, the big bad of season five was a, a character named Glory and Glory's a god. And so it's the first time that Buffy is fighting something beyond the supernatural in the sense that it's something that we have no idea how she's going to kill, have no idea how she's going to get around, how she's going to overcome because Glory beats the shit out of her multiple times and people she loves multiple times. And so season five, Joss Whedon does something that no one else could have gotten away with. And that is he introduces a whole new character of Dawn, played by Michelle Trachtenberg, who is Buffy's younger sister. Now, she's never had a sister before. And so the season starts with her all of a sudden having a sister and we get no explanation. Hmm. It's just like she's always been there. And what we come to find out later in this series and in, in the season is that Dawn was a key for glory that glory is seeking to unlock her ability to become a full goddess again and so these monks turn the key into a human and give that human to the person they believe can protect it the most, which is Buffy. And we don't find that out <laughs> until really far into the season. And then only Buffy knows. Dawn is not even aware. She thinks she's, you know, uh, she's just a kid that's a couple years younger than, than Buffy is. And Dawn really re-energizes a lot of the series. And that season is a beautiful season. It is a beautiful season of just good television of any genre. And that season has what I think is the best episode of Buffy, which is episode 16, which is called The Body. And this is where Buffy's mother dies. Her mother has been fighting cancer and other seasons. And her mother dies of a brain aneurysm. And a lot of people always question Sarah Michelle Gellar's acting chops, whether or not she could play serious, because she's her character is always kind of goofy in some ways. And she's absolutely incredible. And what Joss Whedon and his writing team do in that moment is we've seen all these people fight supernatural forces and Joyce, her mother, dies of natural causes. And it really throws Buffy for a loop because she just it's like she never considered that she never considered that people just die. Um, not because of anything nefarious, but they die for, for all these natural reasons. And it is a gut-wrenching episode. And that was supposed to be the series that ended Buffy. The WB called it the series finale. Uh, Buffy sacrifices her life for Dawn. Um, Buffy dies 
at the end of the, the season. It, the last shot of the season is a shot of a headstone that says, here lies Buffy Summer. She saved the world a lot. <laughs> and that's the end. And that was supposed to be it for Buffy. And so for a lot of people, like I was talking to Carmelita Valdez McCoy a couple of uh, weeks ago on Twitter, and she was like, you know, that's really where Buffy ended for me. And for a lot of people, a lot of fans, that's where Buffy finished. Uh, it feels like a series finale. Uh, but it wasn't because the UPN got the rights to Buffy. <laughs> so we got season six and seven. And when you're talking about the divisiveness, that's where a lot of that divisiveness comes. I know people who refuse to watch season six and seven when they air. They've since seen them, you know, now that we've got streaming services, but they flat out refused. I mean, I was in college at the time and I had friends because we used to have Buffy watch parties that they just stopped coming because they were so annoyed that season six and seven would happen. But I think it's a it's a sad thing for me. I love season six. I'm kind of in the minority. The big bad in that is Willow. Willow becomes um, a dark witch because Tara's murdered. Her girlfriend is murdered. And a big bad in that is also Buffy's apathy because her friends raise her from the grave and she was in heaven. And all of a sudden she's back on earth and so it's a dark season it doesn't have the levity that seasons one through five have and i think a lot of people were turned off by that but you also get the once more with feeling musical episode in episode seven that is just one of the best episodes of tv of all time it's just such a smart musical and you also get um episode 19 scene red where tara dies which again is one of those gut-wrenching episodes but the the tone when it moved to the upn the tone of buffy got much darker and and for people like me, Buffy was older and Buffy was dealing with bigger issues. So for me, it needed to get darker. But a lot of people were like, well, it didn't need to go beyond that. It didn't need to go beyond her being 21 years old. It could have just stopped. And I guess they have a point. And then we end with, se with season seven, which is a very divisive season, which was the final season that has, I think, the one of the most interesting big bads, which is called the first. It literally is the first evil. And it takes on the form of any person that has died. And so we got to see all of the big bads from other seasons come back in the form of the first, which is just a really neat um, storytelling uh a storytelling um, idea and, and device. And that's where Buffy ends. It ends with them literally destroying all of Sunnydale. <laughs> so they have to, they have to go elsewhere, just like she destroys the school and season three, she destroys the whole town. Um, and that's where, where Buffy finishes. Um, so it's a, it's a long journey, but it's a really interesting arc for, for television. So that was a lot, but that's no, that was, that was great. That was great. That's great. So, it's 2019. We started this vampire retrospective, gosh, beginning of the year. You know, we talked about a lot of the different movies that needed to make the list. We, we, we did Fright Night. We did The Lost Boys, Bram Stoker's Dracula. There was never a point where talking about Buffy wasn't going to be part of this. Like, we were always saying that, look, if we're going to talk about the evolution of, of vampires, again, I stress, it's 2019 and Buffy is still hugely in the pop culture lexicon. So I wonder if you could just sort of just speak to why this series has had the long lasting effect. Now, could part of it be its availability now? The fact of the matter is that when it was on TV, it was on TV. And if you wanted to watch it, you had, again, putting reruns aside, you'd have to buy the DVDs and, you know, buy the series. Now we live in a world where we get anything we want. Is the fact that it is so readily available just help keep it in 
the uh, in the discussion. What is it about this that has the long lasting effect? You think? I think it's a couple of things. I think one, it's just really good storytelling, and I think good storytelling has a sense of longevity that other that bad storytelling doesn't. So I think that it's just good storytelling. And I think the other thing is, well, it's twofold. I think vampires are still immensely popular. And so as long as vampires remain popular, Buffy will remain popular because it's such a, a good, you know, vampire vampire world the the lore for it is is incredibly interesting and and original and then i think finally the uh the teen experience hasn't changed. Teens do different things. They dress differently. They listen to different music, but they're still the same. They're still fighting all of these huge battles behind closed doors of loneliness and apathy and feeling like they are the only people in the world going through what they're going through. Being a teenager is immensely hard and no matter what your circumstances are. And I think that Buffy is a show that despite its age, despite it now being 22 years since it premiered, the teenage experience is the same as it's portrayed on that show. And it's one of the most honest and interesting approaches to the teenage experience that has ever existed. And and I can tell you that's why it's so important to so many people like myself. I mean, you know, I am not I'm not a religious person. And so those of us who aren't religious, we form our moral code and our approach to the world through things that we encounter. So, you know, for me, it's things like Slaughterhouse Five and things like Buffy. You know, Buffy is that important to making me who I am because I watched it at such a formative time in my life. And so the things that she went through, well, I was not a slayer. (laughs) I was not killing vampires at night. You know, I was slaying many, many battles of my own and many demons of my own alongside her. And I think people who watch it today that are that age, they are slaying their own problems and their own demons. And even more so, I mean, the world is dark, man. The world is a much darker place than it was in 1997. I'm really glad to have been a teen then and not now because with the advent of social media and the fears of climate change and the things that teens are having to deal with today, that are such adult issues in this body that has yet to form its full frontal lobe and reasoning, you know, sector. It's a frightening place to live in. And shows like Buffy, they just help you feel a little bit better about how fucked up everything else around you is. Before we wrap things up, we live in a world where every intellectual property is rehashed and reproduced and retreaded, if you will. How It's not a question of if, but how long do you think before we get another Buffy series? Because it's it's inevitable. Well, you know, there was the push two years ago. Um, they proposed remaking it. And fans like myself and millions of fans immediately started just tweeting and, you know, hassling the people who brought it up, you know, because I mean, look at the remakes, right? I mean, look at 90210, the remake, it was terrible. Look at the one they just released with the actual characters from 90210 as adults, it was terrible. You know, there's, there's a moment and a place that these shows can happen. And while Buffy's experience is 
I think, applicable to any time. The show itself is, it, it can't be made in the same way today. The technology that we have, the the special effects that we have would totally just change the tonality of Buffy. And they're just, I, I think it is a dangerous thing for us to believe as a society that the only way for us to keep these important pieces of art, whether they be movies or TV, is to remake them. And we, like you said, we live in a world where with streaming, everything is available to us. There's no need to remake it. We don't have to buy the DVDs. The quality is not terrible because they've updated the quality for streaming. You know, we don't have, there's no need, there's no necessity to remake them other than a capital, you know, necessity of wanting money that would come from remaking them. I can tell you it would be a travesty for anyone other than Sarah Michelle Gellar to be Buffy the Vampire Slayer and not just her but all of them all the actors and I feel so guilty because there's one actor we haven't mentioned who is my favorite person on Buffy which is James Marsders who played Spike Spike is by far my favorite character on Buffy and he was my favorite actor on Buffy. And if any of you guys ever go to conventions, James Marsters is like the coolest dude. He will sit and he will talk to you and he will, you know, just chat with you. And he's he's amazing. Um, And his portrayal is amazing. But I can't imagine somebody other than James Marsters playing Spike or, you know, Nicholas Brendan playing Xander, Allison Hannigan playing Willow, any of them. It just wouldn't it wouldn't be Buffy. It would be something different because those people and Joss Whedon, who's been very outspoken that he would never be involved with something like that, that Buffy isn't Buffy without those people. Absolutely. And I think that, I just think it would be an absolute, an absolute travesty. And I hope that it would fail miserably. All right. Interesting. Very interesting. All right. Well, Ashley, Outstanding. Like, <laughs> like the, the amount of insight that you brought to this discussion is on a completely different level. So I really appreciate you taking the time and, and really helping me to understand that the, the super casual viewer of the show, like the person who's seen a few episodes gets, uh, gets the appeal, you know, but never really understood the, the impact and the way you explain things today. You know, like I, I mentioned to you, like I've got several episodes that are queued up, ready to watch later tonight. Like, and I'm going to be watching them with a, a, a real found, newfound appreciation of, of what this show really meant to so many people, especially to you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for, for being on this episode. I know we've had a lot of fun with the, the vampire retrospective, but this one, this one was clearly important to you and I'm glad you got an opportunity to really talk about it. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Mike too, uh, you know, Mike Scott, he's, he's a huge Buffy fan. So shout out to him as well. And to all of you that have messaged, I mean, Buffy brings, Buffy brings people together, Dana. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, so for sure. Like, thanks to all you guys that have reached out to us. Um, you know, we keep tweeting your favorite episodes because I, I do love to rewatch them. So perfect. So if people want to follow you on social media, yeah, you can follow me at, at Ashley Schlafly on Twitter. Perfect. And if you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can follow it at Dana Buckler Show. You can follow us on Instagram at the Dana Buckler Show. You can follow me on Twitter at Dana Buckler. You can email the show at the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com and you can go to the website DanaBucklerShow.com. So what do we got next, Ashley? Ooh, we got Blade. Uh, you know, a, a, a series that's about to be remade. Yeah. And I, I can't be mad at Idris Elba. No, it's not Idris Elba. Who is it? 
Mahershala Ali. Mahershala, yeah, I no, can't be mad no. at Mahershala Ali because he's amazing. But I have to say, I have a pretty soft spot in my heart for Wesley Snipes and Blade. I'm pretty pretty excited about this one. I am excited to tell the listeners about my first experience seeing the movie. Uh, I'll just go up and say it like that opening scene as a DJ was just uh, I was I was over the moon during that part. <laughs> but um, and I'm be just tease a little bit of the time that I actually met Wesley Snipes. And there was a situation where I had to chase him down because he had forgotten something. And I'm not going to say anything more than that, except to say that it, I'm looking forward to sharing that story. So, Ashley, we will we will definitely talk soon. So thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Dana. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.